0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Deadly Therapy. In this episode, I'll tell you the story about a woman who enters therapy as a teenager and then into an inappropriate relationship with her therapist. She will eventually marry the much older man, and years later, accuse him of physical abuse and mind control. When the relationship ends with one of them dead, it is left to determine, was this a case of self-defense or a cold-blooded murder? This is the last chapter in the series, Deadly Therapy, the story of Susan Polk. Sunday night, October thirteenth, two 2002, was the end of a long weekend for Dr. Felix Polk. His 19-year-old son, Adam, had arrived on Friday from college to spend the weekend with his parents. He was also picking up his dog to take back with him to the University of Los Angeles. On Sunday morning, Dr. Polk and his youngest son, Gabriel, age 15, awoke very early to make the six-hour drive from Orinda, California to Los Angeles, to drive Adam back to college. By the time they returned home that same evening, it was after 10 p.m. Exhausted, Dr. Polk undressed and fell into bed wearing only his boxer shorts. There was nothing out of the ordinary about the next day, Monday, October 14th, at the Polk house. Susan picked up Gabriel from school in the afternoon and drove him to a Blockbuster video store to rent a movie. When they returned, She made lunch for the two of them. Susan busied herself with chores, including the laundry, while Gabriel passed the afternoon watching the video and working out in their home gym. He was waiting for his father to return from his office. He was a busy psychotherapist and also a professor of graduate and doctoral studies at a nearby university. Gabe and his father had plans to attend a baseball game. Dr. Polk was a big fan of the San Francisco Giants, and they had both been looking forward to this outing. So it was odd when his father didn't return home at the usual time. Gabe grew even more concerned when it began to grow late and his father still hadn't arrived. He called his dad's office, but there was no answer. He asked his mother if she'd seen or heard from his dad that day. She said she had not. Gabe didn't find this too unusual, since his parents were estranged. In fact, they were in the middle of divorce proceedings and things had grown so contentious that his father had begun sleeping in the pool house just that weekend. Gabriel decided to see if his father, perhaps wanting to avoid his wife, had gone straight to the pool house and to bed. The Polks lived in the upscale Northern California town of Orinda. Orinda, located in the hills just east of UC Berkeley, is home to wealthy professionals and others who want to live within easy access to Oakland, Berkeley, and San Francisco but also desired the peace and privacy of the quaint town with its rolling hills and wooded lots. Their home, located on Minor Road, was valued at almost $2 million. A three-story craftsman-style estate, it boasted a large in-ground pool with a spacious guest house the Polks called the Pool House. Gabriel went to the Pool House, but the door was locked. He peered in the windows, but it had begun to grow dark by now, and there were no lights on inside he returned to the main house. He once again asked his mother if she'd heard from his father, but she assured him she had not. This time his mother remarked, Aren't you happy he's gone? I am. Gabriel gave his mother a disapproving look, but didn't answer. After a little more time had passed with no word, Gabriel decided to try once again. For the second time, he walked to the pool house. But this time, he decided to walk around the building to see if he could observe anything inside. He tried another door and found it unlocked. Entering the pool house, he called out to his father, but there was no answer. Just inside the living room on the floor, he found his father lying face up on his back. He was covered in blood. Gabriel rushed back to the main house and grabbed a cordless telephone. He took it outside so as not to be heard by his mother as he dialed 911. When the operator answered, he told her, My mother shot my father. Susan May Bowling was a 15-year-old student at Clayton Valley High in Concord when she met Felix Polk. She was having trouble at home and was experiencing panic attacks after her parents' divorce. She'd stopped attending school, and the school principal suggested to her mother, Helen, that Susan should see a therapist. She was referred to Dr. Frank Felix Polk. Felix Polk was born in Vienna, Austria in 1932. His family was wealthy, but when his father was arrested by the Nazis, the family had to flee their home and hide out in the French countryside. They lived in the attic of a farmhouse for more than a year, terrified at being discovered by Nazi soldiers, and sent to the death camps. Felix's father was able to escape to France as well, and after placing ads in French newspapers looking for his family, they were eventually reunited. They all escaped to Spain, where they converted to Catholicism to gain entry. They eventually immigrated to the United States, settling in New York. Felix Polk served in the Navy before returning to school to receive his doctorate at UC Berkeley. He then studied under Anna Freud in London, where he developed his model of therapeutic work with adolescents. He returned to California and set up a private practice where he became well-known for his work with teens. Susan became a patient of Dr. Polk's in 1972. There is some debate as to exactly when the 40-year-old married father of two began a romantic and or sexual relationship with a teenager, but whether it was before or after she celebrated her 18th birthday is of little consequence. The American Psychiatric Association, and the American Psychological Association have both long prohibited therapists from having sexual relationships with their patients or former patients. It is viewed as unethical as well as exploitive and harmful to the client. However, there was no law on the books making sex between a therapist and patient illegal in California until 1990. Susan's behavior improved after beginning therapy with Dr. Polk, and she returned to school her mother remained unaware of the relationship between Susan and her therapist. After graduation, Susan attended the all-women's school Mills College before transferring to San Francisco State University. She had since stopped attending therapy with Dr. Polk, but their personal relationship continued. In 1982, Felix Polk divorced his wife, concert pianist Sharon Mann, and married Susan the same year. Susan was 24 years old, he was 50. According to Felix Polk, most of their years of marriage were happy ones. The couple had three sons in quick succession, Adam, born in 1983, just a year after they were wed, Eli in 1985, and their youngest, Gabriel, in 1987. They bought their home in Arinda and lived a privileged lifestyle, enrolling their children in private schools, taking expensive family vacations, and just enjoying family life. Susan was a devoted mother who loved to read and discuss philosophy with her husband. Felix continued to run his thriving psychotherapy practice as well as hold academic positions at UC Berkeley, Argosy University, and Holy Names College, where, fun fact, I received my bachelor's degree. It was only in the last few years before Felix Polk's death that he said things began to change between him and his wife. He would attribute this to health issues Susan was experiencing. He told friends that as her health declined, she became a different person, angry, unpredictable, and paranoid. Susan would also say that her behavior changed when she reached the age of 40, but she claimed it was because she realized she had been controlled and manipulated by her husband since she was a child. Realizing that she was no longer a quote, child bride, she began to rebel against her husband. According to her, when her husband discovered he no longer had control over her, he began to abuse her physically and threaten her and their children. But others would say that it was Susan who was the abusive one in the marriage. Felix's co-workers reported that they knew there were problems in the marriage, but he would say little about it and didn't disparage his wife to others. But the Arinda Police Department had been called to the Polk home numerous times. In these reports... Susan was identified as the aggressor, striking her husband on several occasions. But some characterized Felix as obsessed with Susan. No matter what transpired between them, he continued to say he was in love with his wife and even when she was abusive, made excuses for her. As her anger and abuse continued to escalate against her husband, he held on fast to the relationship, assuring others it would all work out. Felix Polk was also a believer in the later debunked Recovered Memory movement. Recovered memory therapy addressed the belief that some victims of trauma repress terrible memories of abuse or violence completely until they are recalled in therapy or by some other triggering event much later on in life. I covered a story about Recovered Memory in Episodes 122 and 123, The Case of Eileen Franklin. Dr. Polk some said, was one who would latch on to whatever new technique, cause, or psychological fad that was popular at the time. He would also believe the stories that began making the rounds of therapist offices in the 1980s regarding young children and others being subjected to ritual satanic abuse. One of the most well-known of these types of accusations was the ones lodged against the McMartin family. The McMartin family operated a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California they were accused of numerous acts of sexual abuse against children in their care. As parents began to fear the worst, bizarre stories were reported about satanic sex rituals performed on their children, an offshoot of the satanic panic phenomenon that emerged in the 1980s. Susan Polk, perhaps hearing these stories that were then validated by her husband's belief that children were being abused and exploited by Satanists, reported her own story of abuse. In 1987, Susan told the Oakland Tribune that her son had been a victim of abuse while attending a daycare program. She said that he reported seeing people dressed in red, wearing goat's heads, and that he'd been forced to eat feces, had been sodomized, and had witnessed the murder of another child. State and federal investigators were unable to find evidence of any such incidents. This would only be the beginning of Susan's bizarre claims in her life. She would soon turn her delusions towards her husband. By the late 1990s, Felix and Susan Polk's marriage had turned ugly. It appeared that Susan was experiencing mental health issues which caused her to become increasingly paranoid and delusional. She began to identify Felix Polk as the source of all her problems. She was angry and made bizarre claims against him. She said he'd hidden $20 million in a Swiss bank account. She also said that he was a member of Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. Susan also now claimed that she was psychic and had predicted the September 11th terrorist attacks. She believed that Felix had hypnotized her and, while she was in a trance, extracted this information from her to report to the Mossad. Now, believing her husband to be an evil man who was out to destroy her, Susan began to threaten him with harm. She repeatedly told her son that she was going to kill his father. Sometimes she said she'd do it by drugging him and throwing him in the pool to drown. Other times she said she would run him over with her car or shoot him. Felix Polk finally began to confide in friends that he was afraid of his wife. He said she'd purchased a gun and he'd become so fearful of what she might do that he took to barricading himself in another room at night when he slept. But when they urged him to move out of the house for his own protection, he laughed it off. Stress is a great way to lose weight, he joked to a concerned friend. In 2001, after 20 years of marriage, Susan Polk filed for divorce. She left her home in Arinda, in effect, abandoning her children. She continued to make allegations and threats against her husband. Felix then retained his own divorce counsel and in his filing stated that his wife, quote, could be violent, unpredictable, and possibly dangerous, unquote. He also stated, For the past three years, I and our sons have been living in a sort of emotional hell, with Susan becoming more and more explosive and delusional. I have been trying to save our marriage and protect the boys at the same time. I now see that will not be possible. By early October 2002, Susan decided to move out of the area. She set her sights on Montana and traveled there to find a condominium. While she was away, Felix obtained a court order granting him custody of Gabriel and exclusive use of their Orinda home. It also reduced her spousal and child support payments drastically. She had been receiving $6,500 per month, but now the amount dropped to about $1,500 per month. When Susan was informed of this court order, she called Felix and they got into a heated argument she again threatened to kill him. He reported her threat to the police. Susan returned to Orinda on Wednesday, October 9th. The next day, she arrived at the house and talked Gabriel into helping her move his father's bed and other possessions out of the home and into the pool house. When Felix returned home from work that day, he and Susan argued again. The court had prohibited Susan from living in the house until the divorce was settled. She refused to comply with the court order. Susan had left their home months earlier, after which Felix had taken measures to protect himself from her threats. But she now insisted it was her right to live in the house, and he had to leave. The argument escalated with Susan once again threatening to kill him. The police were called once more. This time Felix decided to leave the house, checking into a hotel for a couple of days. Gabe decided to go with him. The next day, Friday, October 11th, Adam returned home from UCLA. He'd come for the weekend to pick up his dog to take back with him. Things were tense and unstable at home, and he didn't want his dog left alone or getting loose and running off. He spent the weekend at the house, planning to return to Los Angeles on Sunday. Early Sunday morning, the three Polk men left Orinda and spent the day together driving to Southern California. They dropped Adam off in the afternoon, and Felix and Gabriel returned home, arriving in Arinda after 10 p.m. Gabe said goodnight to his father and entered the main house, while Felix walked to the pool house to go to bed. It was the last time he'd see his father alive. On Friday, October 14, 2002, Gabriel Polk found his father, Dr. Felix Polk, age 70, lying dead in a pool of blood on the floor of their guest house. He immediately suspected his mother of the murder. She'd been threatening to kill her husband for weeks, if not months, and just a week earlier, Gabe had voiced his concerns to his father, saying that he was afraid his mother might really do it. As he grabbed the cordless phone from inside the house, he heard his mother calling to him. She must have known he'd gone out to check on his father. He was now terrified of what she'd do to him if she caught him calling the police. He went outside and hid behind the house while making the 911 call. My mother shot my father, he breathed into the phone. Police and an ambulance arrived quickly to Gabriel's relief. He rushed out to meet them, directing them to the pool house while staying close to the officers. His mother did not come outside. They confirmed that the man inside the pool house was dead and called a sergeant to the crime scene. Sergeant Ken Hansen was the first investigator to arrive. He observed a gray-haired man dressed only in boxer shorts lying on his back. He was covered in blood, and it had pooled around him. Much of it was already dried. In fact, there was blood everywhere, on the floors, walls, and on the furniture. It was a horrific scene. Upon examination... The sergeant realized this was not a gunshot victim, as the caller had reported, but a stabbing. The man had been stabbed multiple times. He'd also put up a terrific struggle for his life. He had defensive cuts to his hands, forearms, lower legs, and even his feet. It appeared at some point he'd been on his back and had tried to kick his attacker away. The police also observed bloody shoe prints tracked throughout the room. Felix Polk's body was transported to the medical examiner's office, where it was determined he had received 27 wounds to his body, including 15 stab wounds. Five of them were deep enough to penetrate the right lung, stomach, pericardium, diaphragm, and the fat near his kidneys. He also had a blunt force injury behind his right ear. The ME also reported that, grasped in the dead man's hands, was a clump of long brown hair. Gabriel Polk was questioned by the police, and he told them that he suspected his mother was the murderer. He'd told the 911 operator that his father had been shot, but that was because he had fled the house after discovering the body without looking closely. It was a horrible sight that he'd never forget. The idea that his mother might be responsible for her husband's death and then left the body for her son to find seemed particularly cold and unfeeling. It was a detail of this case that would stay with the detectives forever. When police entered the house to find Susan and inform her that her husband had been murdered, they were shocked when she nonchalantly responded, oh well, we were going to get a divorce anyhow. She showed no emotion at all. Her demeanor was very cold, the sergeant later testified. She was taken in for questioning and insisted she had not seen Felix since the morning he left for Los Angeles. She admitted they were in the middle of a divorce but said she had no idea who would have killed him. However, detectives had determined that the bloody shoe prints found at the crime scene were Susan's size, and matched a pair of shoes she owned. They had also discovered that the hair clutched in the dead man's hands were consistent with Susan's. She continued to profess her innocence. To investigators, she characterized her dead husband as a violent man with ties to foreign spies. It was probably his work with the Mossad that had gotten him killed, she told them detectives continued to present her with the evidence they'd collected, which pointed to her as Felix's murderer. She made bizarre claims about alternative suspects, none of which had any basis in reality. Finally, 48 hours after Felix Polk was found dead, Susan finally admitted that she had killed him, but only in self-defense, she claimed. According to Susan's version of events, her husband had become abusive and threatening after she'd filed for divorce. He'd come at her and tried to kill her that Sunday night because, quote, it was clear to him that it was really over. He thought he'd clipped my wings and that I was coming back. I wasn't, unquote. She said Felix Polk had been physically and psychologically abusive to her throughout their marriage, and his rage and violence escalated when she'd left him. Even so, she said she'd gone to the pool house that Sunday evening when he'd returned to talk to him about the divorce settlement. She'd arrived about 10.45 p.m. She had pepper spray with her, she said, for protection in case he grew violent. As they talked, Susan said Felix became enraged and hit her in the face. She'd pulled out the pepper spray and blasted him once in the eyes, but he kept coming towards her. He hit her again. They struggled together, and he'd grabbed a knife, stabbing at her leg. It had pierced her pants, but hadn't cut her. She then kicked him in the groin and grabbed the knife. She said she then stabbed him in self-defense. When asked if it was self-defense, why she didn't report the killing, Susan said she believed she would be railroaded by the criminal justice system. But Gabriel reported that his mother had behaved completely normally the entire day leading up to his discovering of his father's body. She pretended not to know where he was and had plenty of time that day to wash her bloody clothes and clean off the murder weapon, a kitchen knife she'd washed and placed back in a drawer. the prosecution sought to convict Susan Polk of murder in the first degree and the death of Felix Polk. To them, the motive was clear. Susan had murdered her wealthy husband once she was in jeopardy of losing her house, her children, and her financial support. She was released on bail to await trial, but it was later revoked when she violated the terms of her bail by contacting her son Gabriel, who was to be a witness for the prosecution. The trial was held up with delay after delay, most as a result of Susan Polk's actions. She could not get along with her attorneys, firing three of them before being represented by notable defense attorney, Daniel Horowitz. The prosecution appeared to have a clear-cut case, with all the evidence pointing to Susan catching her husband unaware, attacking him, and killing him. She had made several threats against her husband's life, a detail that Gabriel was prepared to testify to. Her footprints were found in dried blood, the shoe prints matched her size, and clumps of her hair were found in the dead man's hands. As for her claims of self-defense, there was little evidence to suggest this. The blunt force injury to the back of Felix Polk's head, as well as the one stab wound to the back, suggested that Susan had incapacitated him from behind before stabbing him repeatedly from the front. She also lacked any wounds, such as cuts from grabbing the knife away from Felix, as she claimed, or bruises or other injuries to any part of her face or body. These, investigators insisted, would be present if she'd engaged in a struggle like the one she described. In making their case for murder, prosecutors pointed out that Susan also failed to report the killing. If she had simply killed him in self-defense, as she claimed, they believed she would have called the police to report this. Finally, she had taken steps to cover up the crime, hiding the murder weapon and washing her bloody clothing, which pointed to premeditation or at least a guilty conscience. Her trial began in October 2005, with the defense claiming that Susan had been abused and controlled by Felix Polk since the time she met him as a 15-year-old therapy patient. Susan claimed that beginning early on in their therapy sessions, Felix had drugged and raped her and continued to sexually abuse her throughout her teen years. Her attorney, Daniel Horowitz, presented Susan as a battered wife, who'd lived under the physical and emotional control of her husband for years. But on October fifteenth, Daniel Horowitz returned home to discover his wife, 52-year-old Pamela Vitali, beaten to death in their home. With the attorney unable to return to court while dealing with the aftermath of this tragedy, Susan Polk's murder trial was then declared a mistrial. When the second trial began, Horowitz returned to represent Polk, but she had begun criticizing her attorney in the media, saying he'd been inattentive to her since his wife's murder. Horowitz later reported that one of his client's complaints was that he hadn't visited her in jail often enough. The final straw came when Susan gave statements to reporters implying that her attorney may have been involved in his wife's death. In January 2006, Polk asked the judge for Horowitz to be taken off her case. The request was granted, and a new trial date was set for February 2006. But none of the attorneys assigned to her were acceptable to Susan Polk, and she requested to represent herself at trial. Her attorneys had urged her to consider a defense based on a claim of mental illness, but she refused. Susan fired three separate attorneys before the judge allowed her to serve as her own counsel. Opening statements began in March 2006. Court TV was on hand to televise the proceedings. Everyone was especially eager to hear from the star witness for the prosecution, Susan's son Gabriel. Susan would have to cross-examine him on the stand, and the media predicted fireworks. But even before that happened, there was plenty for the media to report on at the trial. Susan Polk continued to argue and bicker with both the prosecution and the judge. She claimed in open court that there was a vast conspiracy against her, and that the crime scene had been staged, with police officers dipping her shoes in blood and stamping them around the room she continued to assert that Felix Polk was a spy for Israeli intelligence. The jury heard about her so-called psychic abilities and her 9-11 prediction. She also said that Felix plotted the 1978 assassination of San Francisco Mayor George Moscone. She refused to follow proper court procedure, instead going on long, drawn-out rants about irrelevant nonsense until the judge threatened to hold her in contempt. On March 13th, Gabriel Polk, now 19, took the stand. Susan tried to draw out of her son a story of a happy childhood. She wanted him to admit that she'd been a good mother. Do you recall being a happy child, she asked. Gabe answered directly and without emotion. I remember moments of happiness. But he also said, parents in the neighborhood were scared of you. Clearly angry at his mother, he referred to October 14, 2002 as, quote, the night you murdered dad, unquote. Her oldest son, Adam, also took the stand as a prosecution witness. While under cross-examination by his mother, Adam Polk referred to his mother as bonkers and most famously, cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Only one of her sons, Eli Polk, testified on her behalf. He had not been living at home at the time of his father's murder, as he'd been serving a juvenile sentence in the California Youth Authority. Eli testified that his father was unstable and violent. He also made bizarre claims about his father's career as a spy. He claimed to have witnessed his father batter his mother on several occasions. However, his two brothers directly contradicted these claims, saying it never happened and that their mother was the only one who'd ever been violent. Susan claimed that Adam and Gabe had been brainwashed by their father and had turned against her by their motivation to gain control of the family's estate even her expert witnesses came across as unbelievable. She called to the stand a psychic detective to testify to her own abilities as a psychic medium. Dr. John Cooper, an expert on forensic pathology, testified for the defense that Felix Polk's cause of death was due to acute coronary insufficiency due to severe coronary artery disease. The multiple stab wounds were merely a contributing factor, according to Dr. Cooper. Felix's wounds, although serious, were not life-threatening, he said. A severe blockage of two main arteries of his heart were the primary cause of his death, he told the jury. He also told the court that he would have listed Felix Polk's cause of death as natural rather than homicide. Clearly, the jury could see that most of Susan's defense was not based in reality. But she herself admitted to the jury that she had refused to undergo a psychological evaluation, and denied that she was suffering from any delusions. The judge had to admonish Susan Polk in open court several times due to her outbursts. She called the prosecutor an immoral creep and a lying and deceitful man. She disregarded the court's rulings, made claims of misconduct and bias against the judge, the deputies, the court reporter, and anyone else she felt opposed her. During her cross-examination of her son Gabriel, the judge warned her that she was bordering on abusive. Assistant District Attorney Paul Sequeira, who was especially singled out for Susan's poison tongue, had this to say. She's hateful. I have prosecuted many heinous criminals, and she's not in that group, but I've never gone against anybody so hateful. On June 16, 2006, Susan Polk was found guilty of second-degree murder. The jury would report that they found neither the testimony of Susan or Eli Polk credible. They felt Eli's testimony was coached by his mother. They also did not find any evidence of abuse or battery by Felix Polk towards Susan, and her character assassination of him did not win her any points with the jury. Numerous attorneys declined to represent her before her sentencing. Her mother, Helen Bowling, asked the court to have compassion on her daughter, saying that she'd, quote, been in prison since she was 14 years old, unquote. Susan continued to claim that Felix Polk had abused her since she was a child, but it was pointed out that it had been only after 24 years that Susan had made any claims of abuse against her husband. Other friends would say that both Felix and Susan had told them that their sexual relationship began years after they first met. At her sentencing, the judge conceded that although their initial relationship may have been unethical and problematic, this should not be considered a mitigating factor in her sentencing because it was not an issue put before the jury at trial. If Susan had agreed to a psychiatric evaluation and or a mental health defense, the jury may have been allowed to consider that her inappropriate teenage relationship with her therapist was a contributing factor to her mental state and ultimately the murder. Susan Polk was sentenced to 16 years to life in prison. Having already served three years behind bars, she would be eligible for parole after serving 12 more. But Paul Sequeira said he doubted that would happen. She will have to earn her way out, and the chances of that are slim, he told reporters. He added, she has no remorse. She is still defiant, and I think she will be until she draws her last breath. Polk's appeal was denied, and she continues to serve her sentence at the California Institute for Women in Corona, California. Just recently, in May 2019, she went up before the parole board for the first time. Not only was she denied a parole date, she was also kicked out of the hearing by the board halfway through the meeting. She decided to act as her own attorney at the parole hearing as well. She immediately began arguing with the board commissioners. At one point, Commissioner Rosalio Castro said, Mrs. Polk, please stop talking, as Polk rambled on about the inappropriate length of her sentence and was determined to rehash the points of her original trial. She was told that she could make her statements only after the commissioners had completed their questions to her. She continued to ignore their questions, refusing to answer. They asked her about her continued propensity for violence. Instead of answering, she asked to enter objections to the questions. That's not the way this process works, they explained. You must answer our questions for us to consider your eligibility for parole. Polk then brought out a list of over 100 legal objections to the parole process and tried to submit it to the board. They refused to receive it, which set off another round of arguments from Polk. They then brought up her prison record, including a 2017 write-up for assault against a police officer. She said the allegation was unfounded, and insisted she was nonviolent. She even said that regarding her husband's death, quote, there was no murder, unquote. After Polk continued to disrupt the proceedings with irrelevant statements, objections, and arguments, the board called for a recess. They decided to continue the hearing without her present, and she was returned to her cell. She was non responsive, refusing to cooperate with the process here of questions and answers, Commissioner Castro reported. After they'd gone off the record before the recess, Polk had accused the panel of being biased against her. A representative from the district attorney's office told the board he opposed Polk being granted parole due to her problematic prison record. She'd gotten into frequent trouble while incarcerated, including refusing to have a cellmate and accusing a female guard of being a man disguised as a woman. Eli Polk spoke at his mother's parole hearing, saying that the murder of his father was an anomaly and that his mother had never been a violent person, quote, up until that incident, that violent incident, unquote. Susan Polk told the board that she and Eli had stayed in touch. Polk said, I told Eli I want on my tombstone, no one could have asked for a gentler, sweeter mother. Susan Polk was denied parole. The commissioners feared she would commit another violent crime if released. They also decided she would not be eligible for another parole hearing for 10 years. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. And that will wrap up the series, Deadly Therapy. I mentioned a second murder case in this episode, that of attorney Daniel Horowitz's wife, Pam Vitali. I'll share the details of that case in a bonus episode on Patreon. You can become a member and support the show for just $2 or more per month. To get access to that episode, and over a dozen other bonus episodes available for Patreon members only. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to become a patron. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.